Good afternoon. Our next um, our next presenter is Deanna, uh, Deanna McLeod. She's been. Uh, oh, wait a minute. Yes. Um, she's been on a couple of times before as an expert. So, um, Deanna, if you could give us your full name again and spell it for us and do the oath again, please. So my name is Deanna McLeod. That's D-E-A-N-N-A McLeod, M-C-L-E-O-D. And you uh, promise that the uh, evidence you'll give today is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Yes, I do. Thank you. Um, I think I'm just going to let you launch into your presentation, but I gather this time you're going to be talking about uh, some of the Pfizer, Pfizer data, the yes. six-month reports and the two-month reports, and then you're going to do some analysis for us. That's so, right. Okay, take it away. <laughs> um, thank you very much for having me today. Um, my name is Deanna McLeod, and I am the principal and founder of a medical research firm called Kaleidoscope Strategic. Um, I've worked for uh, about a decade in industry in many roles in medical marketing and sales. I have a background in immunology and cognitive psychology. Um, and I founded my firm in 2000 because um, what, I, what I came to perceive as uh, undue industry influence on recommendations related to cancer therapy. And I wanted to create uh, an opportunity for clinicians to basically make guidelines free of industry in influence. Uh, and so I've spent, uh, my team and I, have spent uh, probably about 23 years now analyzing clinical data, especially relating to industry bias uh, and how they might, un uh, I guess, bias the information uh, toward, in their favor, which tends to, um, include uh, emphasis of benefits of a drug and minimizing safety issues. And so today what I'd like to do is I'd like to walk you through the cornerstone phase three trial used to support the use of the mRNA, uh, COVID-19 mRNA products that have been promoted by Pfizer as vaccines. And so um, what I'd like to do is begin with the concept of uh, do no harm, which is the Hippocratic Oath. It's the foundation of, of what we do in the sense of medicine, meaning things that promote health. Uh, the very, very minimum needs to be that it's safe. We don't want to be doing additional harm when we're promoting a drug or uh, recommending a drug for the general public. And that comes in direct conflict with uh, industry's primary goal, which is to make profit. Uh, and so we're in a good place when we can balance the, the opportunity for innovation and profit against uh, the, uh, to ensure that it, they're also safe. Um, and what I'm going to do today is I'm going to walk you through uh, the phase three trial and the multiple stages of, of reporting that went on there. And I want to talk to you about how they manipulated the data to emphasize benefits and minimize safety issues uh, in order to profit handsomely off of a world that was looking for a solution to the COVID-19 crisis. So many of you may or may not be familiar with hierarchies of evidence, but in science, not all science is the same. We've heard lots of people talk about how we need to follow the science. Um, in my area, what we know is that not all science is the same. Some science, some trials are designed in a way that can prove something 
Uh, and other science is meant to uh, generate hypotheses that then go on to fuel the concept of phase three trials that then can prove things. Uh, and so what you see on this slide set is hierarchies of evidence, and the top of the hierarchy of evidence is the level one evidence, and that is a phase three randomized controlled trial, um, preferably placebo controlled. And the reason why that is so important is that there's all sorts of factors that can influence the outcomes uh, in research, and by randomizing patients to one uh, arm or the other, uh, what you are able to do is control for baseline factors or factors that might un otherwise influence the outcomes. And so we're generally confident at the end of a randomized controlled trial to see if there's a difference between the two arms that that's attributed to the actual product. And so uh, the reason why we're looking at the phase three trial is because that is the level one evidence that they used uh, to promote this particular uh, drug. So one of the things that I do whenever I'm doing an analysis is the first thing you look is conflicts of interest. And a conflict of interest means that uh, you want to be looking to make sure that the people who designed the trial didn't have other objectives or influences in mind. So for instance, a good, the most obvious conflict of interest would be a financial conflict of interest. So if somebody were to gain or stand to gain a lot of money, uh, for a trial to have a certain outcome, like for instance a pharmaceutical trial uh, being positive, knowing that the whole world would take your drug, then you'd have high motivation to make sure that the benefits of the drug outweighed the risks. And so what I'd like to show you today is that the drug, that the actual trial that was um, used by Pfizer was actually sponsored both by Pfizer and BioNTech, meaning that all the money and the resources that went into running that trial came from the pharmaceutical company. So right away there, we can see that uh, if something's sponsored, it's not independent research. It's something that's been developed by the company that has a lot to gain, that stands to gain a lot from positive results. Uh, what I also want to highlight is that the two founders of BioNTech uh, were part of the author list, and they went on to gain at least $9 billion. Their, their company went on to profit $9 billion. So again, this is high stakes. This is probably the highest stake trial that's ever been done that I can be, that I can recall. The other thing that we want to be aware of is that the lead author and the senior author, the two authors that are responsible for the research, actually either had stocks or were employees of Pfizer. So again, the key roles uh, and the founders of the trial that were responsible for designing, running, analyzing, and reporting these trials all were people who stood to gain for by the actual trial. Now, that doesn't actually say that it was biased, but I'm saying that it is, has a great potential for bias. The other thing that we need to remember is that Pfizer has a long history of fraud. They've been convicted of fraud, and they've also been convicted of manipulating the data, and that's on the public record. And so when we start to analyze a trial, we basically want to be looking at the actors, who ran the trial, how much they stood to gain, and whether they have an actual record in that particular department. The other thing I want to highlight is that on the record, there's a BMJ medical uh, the BMJ Journal published a whistleblower report actually indicating that Ventavia, which was the run, the clinical research organization that ran the trial, actually was fraudulently manipulating data. And so there's a case in courts right now where they've been accused of that. So as it relates to previous trials, uh, they've manipulated data. And as it relates to this particular trial, there's a, a, a court case uh, ongoing presently 
uh, looking into the falsification of data. So this is a very, very busy slide. And the thing that I'd like you to understand when you're looking at this slide is the amount of red. So red are the people in the system related to recommendations that are made for COVID that, could stu that stood to benefit from a positive outcome. Now, it's a very complicated slide, and I don't want to spend too much time working through it, but I do want you to know that, um, generally speaking, a guideline, which is that blue bar that's in the middle, is produced based on a group of scientists that, in this case, and for immunization, it would be NASI. And those group, that group of independent scientists are supposed to review the published literature. If you look to the top of the, the chart, you can see a square that says public, or a rectangle that says published literature. And so these trial results were, present, were published. They were presented to Health Canada. Um, and in conjunction and under the guidance of NASI, uh, they reviewed this particular trial and then found that the benefits uh, of this particular drug, the COVID-19 mRNA product, uh, were worth uh, approving in Canada. And what that means is that they felt that it was sufficiently safe and effective and that the, the generally speaking, the test is that it's safe and effective and that the benefits outweigh the risks. However, there has been a lot of global industry influence in various aspects of the system. And I'm just going to walk you through some of those influences. So for instance, the World Health Organization, which was quarterbacking the pandemic response, is actually found, uh, funded in large part by the Gates Foundation that has investments in pharmaceutical companies. The NIAID and Anthony Fauci, who is quarterbacking the response in the US, actually has, uh, the NIAID has a strong relationship with Gates uh, in the, as it relates to viruses and vaccines. And in addition, they hold a patent for the spike protein that was used in some of these mRNA products. And they are able to profit because they have the patent uh, by recommendations related to this. We also um, know that there has been a lot of activity on the part of our government. Uh, there is a health and biosciences economic strategic table, economic strategy table, that's been um, at play for the last four or five years. And that group of people have recommended that we deregulate our, our regulations. And they actually put a new test in for the actual uh, mRNA product. And the new test was that it basically didn't have to prove safety anymore. All that it had to do was prove that the that there was sufficient evidence to conclude that the benefits outweighed the risks, which is a very loosey-goosey type thing. And almost uh, what they were able to do is push those products forward with preliminary data. Uh, and in a way that made the public think that they'd been proven safe when they hadn't been. Um, I don't want to go on too much more, but I do want to say that these same global entities are directing the research that has been coming, the public resources that we've had that have directed the research related to COVID. And they've also made partnerships with our universities. So the experts that we rely on in order to be able to provide sound guidance to us are actually people who have uh, partnerships with these companies that are producing these products. Um, and so, and they're also, and then the media, sorry, the last thing, uh, is also somebody that relies very heavily on these, pro com uh, these companies for advertising dollars. So the long and the short of it is, almost through every channel that we have and check in our system to provide, make independent analysis, there is some sort of uh, financial interest in these particular mRNA products being 
put forward. And so when we go to look at the data, which we're going to do now, what I'd really like to have you think about is all of the motivation coming in from every sector of our guideline development process that was pushing for this particular uh, product to be uh, sold, and therefore the stakes in making sure that the benefits outweighed the risks of this particular trial, which was the cornerstone of the whole enterprise and all of the people involved, um, comes down to this particular study. So let's just walk through the study. Um, this is a chart, and I just want to uh, take a brief moment to talk about this. Whenever you go to look at the design of a trial, the first thing you have to ask is why are you making this product? And uh, when we're going to look at the clinical trial, we're going to see if the trial was designed in a way that would tell us what we need to know and what we want to accomplish. So this particular chart looks fairly complicated. But basically what it does is it's showing, and this is based on uh, how, Stats Canada data from March 2020 to February 2021, and it plots um, the number of cases, and that's the blue line that's floating along the top of the chart. The hospitalizations are the red line, the ICU admittances, which is a little blue line, and then the deaths, which is the red line, and it plots it for each of the age groups. So uh, those less than 19 years to the left, moving forward to those that are 80 years and older on the very far right. And by looking at those lines, if we just were to follow, for instance, the red line, which indicates hospitalization, what we see is that the hospitalization um, in the, for most of the segments is very, very low per 100,000. So within 100,000 people, those, it's not very high. But then when you get to 70 and older, and even the 80 and older, what we see is you have a lot of hospitalization. Um, also, you have an increased amount of death per 100,000 on that side of the thing. And one of the things that is really interesting about that is that there's been two reports that have been written. One is the CIHI report that talked about the COVID response in long-term care homes, and the second one was an Ontario COVID Commission. And both of those reports basically indicated that the reason why you have high rates of hospitalization and death in the long-term care facilities is because that they have been chronically underfunded. And of course, you have susceptible individuals in there, and they were completely under-resourced, so they weren't able to stop the spread of the disease. So these long-term care residents were trapped, and the virus was, was circulating extensively through there. And so one of the things that we see when we're looking at that is that probably it means that the elderly are probably most susceptible to uh, COVID-19. And then secondly, what it tells us is that there are uh, physical reasons because of community spread that these elderly people were hardest hit. And that is not something that can be solved by an mRNA product. However, that was used as the basis for clinic creating the perception of a need for that product that was then told, then we were then told that was needed, we needed to vaccinate everybody in order to protect these people. However, that actually probably wasn't based on the uh, in-depth analysis that had been conducted the reason. However, that's what was put forth. So this is another thing that I'd like to, to look at. One of the things that we can see this is this is our world and data and it's basically uh, a time analysis of the different variants. On the far left, you can see that there's a red patch, and that is the red, the red patch there represents the original virus. Um, and this particular trial that we're going to be looking at was conducted during the time when the original variant was circulating. 
and the very initiation of the vaccinations, the vaccine campaign occurred on December 2020 during the time that the original strain was circulating. However, what you can see very clearly by the change in color moving to the right-hand side of the screen is that that original variant has been completely replaced in Canada by, uh, or the original virus has been replaced by various variants, all the way to which um, we now have the Omicron variant, which is the far, you know, probably from about the middle part of the screen to the right. Uh, and the original mRNA product was not very effective, or it was considerably less effective uh, on these new variants than it was on the original product. So one of the things that we would say right away is that these results, before we even look at anything, are clinically irrelevant to a large degree because the pharmaceutical companies are arguing that you need boosters uh, because the original uh, injections are no longer beneficial. So if we're going to follow that line of argument that we need boosters, then that would mean that those products are no longer effective. And so therefore, the phase three trial that is the cornerstone of this whole campaign would be clinically irrelevant and should be disregarded out of hand based on that alone. So the other thing that we need to look at when we're looking at a, a clinical trial and whether it's been well designed is the type of therapy that we're looking at. So I work in the area of cancer, and so we work with biologics. And biologics are basically different human products that have been used for therapeutic purposes. And so this mRNA product is what we, the FDA would categorize as gene therapy, and so would the Health Canada. Uh, and gene therapy... Uh, according to the FDA, has very many undesirable and unpredictable outcomes, and many of them can be very delayed. And so what that would mean is that we'd want to see a trial that extensively studies these products for a long period of time. Uh, the FDA recommends for many gene therapies that they be studied for 15 years. And what we're going to see when we look at this particular trial is that these products were put on the market after two months of phase three study. Uh, and so when we think about that compared to the amount of time that is recommended for this, we could again out of hand say that this trial was conducted, that the preliminary results should not have been sufficient for this type of product. Um, and, you know, in, in our area of cancer, even when we're dealing with people who are at the, um, in stages of life, we would never recommend a product that's been put on the market for two two months, and yet what we did is we turned around and we gave these biologics um, to healthy people indiscriminately, without exception. And right away, that should have never been done. So what we're going to look at now, just very quickly, is before we even get into the actual trial, is the phase one, two trial. So they basically, before you conduct a phase three trial, you have a phase one trial. In the phase one trial, basically what they did was they wanted to see if the uh, mRNA product could produce antibodies. So that chart on the right looks fairly complicated, but the two red bars are basically the, the reason why they felt that they should move forward with this product as a vaccine. So um, they chose the, the 30 milligram, the microgram uh, dose. And if you look at that, after one dose of the mRNA product, uh, you basically have some, anti some antibodies that are produced, and those are those little green dots. And what they did right there in that phase one trial is they compared it to uh, the antibodies of somebody who'd actually contracted and recovered from COVID 14 days prior. 
And what you can see is that the number of antibodies and the, and the level of antibodies is actually comparable between one dose of the mRNA product and one dose of natural acquired immunity. So right out of the gate, we knew that these mRNA products were probably about as, as effective as natural acquired immunity. And yet throughout the pandemic, one of the main messages that we received was that natural acquired immunity was insufficient. And yet this Pfizer actually published this trial that demonstrated that one dose of the mRNA product was equivalent to naturally acquired immunity. They went on to give a second dose and then argued that the level of antibodies produced by a second dose at a much later time frame was better than naturally acquired immunity. And they didn't go on to actually consider whether a person would naturally be infected again and also have the same stimulated antibodies. So, and the other thing that we need to remember is that antibodies at the time when they actually produced this trial were not considered a valid test for immunity. So they had no basis for thinking that these particular antibodies that were being produced would go on for immunity. And in fact, the FDA and the CDC both indicate that antibody testing is not a proper measure for immunity. So they had no basis to move forward with this particular phase three trial. So let's just take a look at the actual trial design. This is something that I look at all the time, which is a schematic of how the trial was, design, uh, was run. And it's probably too complicated for most people in this audience, but I do wanna underscore a lot of things uh, about the trial design that were concerning for us and our, myself and my team. So the first one, if you look on the far left, was uh, the blue box indicates who was involved in the trial. Now, if you recall that schematic that I showed you early, the only people who were really at risk of severe disease were people who were uh, in long-term care facilities where the, the virus was circulating. These were people at high risk. And the people who were actually studied in this particular trial were healthy individuals. So this actual product was never tested within the phase three context in the sense of being able to prove anything in people who were actually at risk for COVID-19. So that's the first thing. The trial was run as we looked at previously in the pre-Omicron area. So we have questions as to whether these studies are actually, these data is actually clinically relevant. And the other thing that's really important to note is that the study was run at people who had never ex had prior COVID and yet the majority of people, even by the point when we started rolling out these vaccines, had been exposed to COVID-19. And so, again, this study would be clinically irrelevant and should never have been used as the basis for promoting these particular vaccines. Uh, what they did, again, was they compared two doses of the mRNA product to placebo. Um, but again, as we looked at before, they'd already proven that natural acquired immunity was very active. So what they should have done is they should have compared it to naturally acquired immunity or something along those lines or designed a study that would factor that in. So when you make a comparison that you know is never going to fail, that's called stacking the deck. And that's one of the things that they did when they, tried, they actually designed this particular trial. The other thing that they did was they only measured immunity seven days after the second dose. Uh, so that's just one point in time. So when they were making their statements about this particular vaccine, what they really should have been saying is, seven days after your second dose, you're protected. Because that's all that this particular trial was able to actually argue. Um, the other thing too is that they did minimal safety testing. Uh, when I say minimal safety testing, uh, one would expect that you would 
um, want to do preclinical or subclinical as well as clinical testing that you'd want to have these people in a, in a clinical setting and monitor them very carefully. And yet what we find is that they really only monitor them very carefully for about seven days after uh, their second shot, well, after each shot, and then allowed them to report on their own if they were experiencing any adverse events. And so that would be very concerning if using a biologic in cancer, and we would have never allowed that, and yet that's how this particular trial was designed. And finally, the last point that I really want to make about this trial is that it was stopped two months after it began, or about after about two months of follow-up. So we never really understood anything long-term about this particular product. And so this is just looking at the actual design of the trial. And one of the last things that we want to remember is that this, this practice of mass vaccination is only reasonable if you have a product that is actually able to stop transmission. And in the actual primary publication of this particular trial, they indicated that one of the unanswered questions or the limitations of this particular trial is that they don't know if it stops transmission. So there was never any basis for uh, the practice or the recommendation of mass vaccination or any of the catchy tags that they had about, you know, the vaccine is the best way to protect you or and your family because they actually had no data to support that statement. So I'm just going to uh, talk about the last point around tr trial design, and that was that there were major groups of people, the high-risk people, who weren't included in this particular trial. So I'm just going to walk you through the immunocompromised, again, not studied. Uh, those with multiple comorbidities or, or non-controlled chronic illnesses, classified as high-risk, not studied. Pregnant women, not studied but recommended in there. Uh, the frail elderly, they weren't included in the trial either. And the COVID recovered weren't included in the trial. And yet all of those people were told that they needed to ta take this particular product. So um, the, first, this, the um, first results of this particular trial were published uh, in September 20, or December 2020. Uh, and the trial was toted as being 95% effective. And we were, this is an incredible success. It's an incredibly effective trial. Um, and the safety at, the, at two months, was we were told, was similar to other viral vaccines. So they immediately approved these agents using this modified test that was an industry-derived test, uh, a change in the regulatory status in Canada. And then they basically did something where they said, now that we're giving this to everybody, it's unethical to allow the people on the placebo arm of the, of the trial to continue. So what we'll do is we'll cross them over and we'll give them the opportunity to receive the vaccine. And so 89% of the people who should have been on the control arm, which would have allowed us to prove harm, were actually put over onto the mRNA product arm. And what that did was it, it erased the ability for us to show both that it was safe long-term, but also any way of showing that it was harming anybody long-term. Uh, and so one of the reasons why pharmaceutical companies like to cross over early is because then they can promote their drug and there will be no recourse in the sense that nobody would be able to prove that the drug is harmful. And so they do very well in the courts. So let's just take a look at efficacy. We move on and they publish results six months later. And again, 
uh, promoting it as highly effective with a 91.3% efficacy for stopping COVID-19 and 97% efficacy for stopping severe disease. Uh, and that was going to go on as, you know, I got COVID, but at least it wasn't as bad as it could have been, and that was based on this particular trial. So there's the data, and I want to show you right now that there's different ways of reporting data. You can report it relative, you know, the, the investigational agent relative to the placebo, or you can just talk about absolute benefit. Uh, and one of the things that companies like to do is they like to talk about relative benefit because it makes the numbers seem really exciting and really big. And that's what they did with this particular product. They said that it was 91% effective in terms of symptomatic cases and 97% effective in terms of severe cases. But if you actually look at the absolute risk change, which is the far right corner of this particular table, only about 4% of people actually benefited from this particular vaccine. And in terms of stopping severe disease, it was 0.1%. And the numbers, for instance, one versus 22, are very low. And if you actually look at the number of people that were lost to follow-up just before they reported these results, it was in the hundreds. And so therefore, if you have that many people lost to follow-up and an event rate that is at 23, you can basically say, you should have said, the data is unreliable and we can't, we can't move forward with this particular thing. But instead, what they said was, it's highly effective, let's keep going. Another thing that they did to make this result seem a little bit more favorable than they were is they combined two cohorts. They reported the adult cohort at six months with the younger cohort at six months or that had less than six months. And because the efficacy of this particular vaccine wanes, by combining and, and rolling in the uh, outcomes for the younger cohort, what they were able to do is bump up the efficacy and make it seem like it was doing more it was being more beneficial in adults than it was. And we actually, you know, in the subtext of that particular article, it talks about how um, the vaccine efficacy was dropping from about 6% every two months. So they knew that the vaccine efficacy wasn't holding, and yet they continued to promote it. This is a quick chart from another paper, and it's a, a matched retrospective cohort paper that's really complicated again. But what this particular study did was they did that trial where they compared the vaccine to natural infection. And what they actually found was that when you compare natural immunity to uh, vaccine-induced immunity, that you get a 50% lower relative reduction in the chance of catching COVID if you have natural acquired immunity compared to the vaccine. So therefore, the natural acquired immunity is substantially better than um, the vaccine. And yet again, this has gone uh, this has been published for a while now and hasn't been emphasized. And again, this particular paper talks about severe COVID-19 and it shows that you're 80% more less likely to get COVID-19 if you receive the, uh, if you naturally have naturally acquired immunity compared to whether you're being vaccinated at one year. So that is a, you know, in my particular field, if you get something that has a hazard ratio of 80% of, of 0.24, um, it's a home run, and everybody, practice should have changed immediately, and yet they continue to promote these particular drugs. Let's just talk about safety. So I would say, if we were to summarize efficacy, that they made the wrong comparison in order to be able to show that their drug is better. 
they used a metric for conveying the benefits of that drug that emphasized the thing, and then they combined cohorts in order to emphasize the benefits of this particular drug. So let's just consider now what they did in terms of safety uh, in manipulating those data. So here we have what they called reactogenicity, and that just means that seven days after you receive a vaccine, they measure how you react to it, the adverse reactions. Um, and then they basically uh, you know, dismiss that as just a normal course of getting a vaccine. But one of the things that I uh, want to highlight in looking at this is that the little orange bars above each of, well, that the, okay, let's just start at the beginning. So with each dose, at least 60% of the people who received that dose actually experienced COVID-like symptoms. So these vaccines are actually inducing the same type of illness that we were trying to prevent. Now you can't call it COVID because the definition of COVID is these symptoms plus a positive PCR test. But of course, these people wouldn't have uh, the code for the full virus because they weren't there. But if you actually did encode for the spike protein and tested that, then you would probably say that these people have the part of the virus that causes illness. And so what we're doing is we're inducing COVID-like illness in the people that we are giving these doses to. But we're calling it not, in, not being infected. That wouldn't be technically correct. Um, and the other thing, too, is that 3.8% at the very least, and, and for some other things more, three, at least 3.8% of the people are, are getting so sick with this COVID-like illness that they're not able to carry about their work. Uh, and yet, the people who are promoting these mRNA products basically said that these vaccines were safe. So we're causing 60% of the people who get them, and this is based on their own data, to get ill, the illness that we're trying to prevent by actually giving these products. And we're causing 3.8% of them, and I can use the word cause because this is a randomized controlled trial, uh, are getting so sick that they can't carry about their daily activities. And this is only because we're looking closely for the first seven days, and they don't look carefully after that. So it could be going on much longer, but we wouldn't know because they stopped looking. And another way to minimize your safety issues is to not test for it. So the fact that they stopped testing at seven days is probably a clue right there. And the other thing to, the, to recall is that this happens with each dose. So we're causing people to be sick with each dose. And the other thing, too, is that the, the amount of um, adverse effects increases with each dose, and yet we recommend boosters without any, safe, any further safety studies. So what I would probably say here is that they managed to call or dismiss considerable adverse reactions or safety issues by calling it reactogenicity and dismissing it, and also... Um, by only measuring for seven days. You, don't, you have much fewer safety issues if you don't look for them. But they did have one group of people, and they did look fairly carefully, and these were people who were able to um, report if they had an adverse effect at some point after uh, they received the shots within the first month for those who were reporting severe adverse events and serious adverse effects. Uh, they were able to follow those people for six months, and then after that, they stopped looking. So again, not long enough for a biologic, which should be studied for 15 years, at least gene therapy. 
So I'm just going to talk about severe adverse events. Now, a severe adverse event, as defined in this particular trial, is something that interferes with your daily activity, requires medical care, an ER visit, or hospitalization. So this is not something to be taken lightly. And uh, what we find when we actually look at the study is that there were 262 people who experienced severe adverse events in the mRNA product arm and only 150 in the placebo arm. Even though the people in the placebo arm had more COVID documented, uh, they actually had less adverse effects, one could assume, related to illness. They had less illness or less adverse reactions than the people who actually received the mRNA product. And that was an increase, a relative increase of 75%. So when they were telling you that it was 91% effective at stopping COVID, that would mean that mild COVID potentially. What they weren't telling you is that there was a 75% increase in the number of people who were actually getting seriously ill from these shots. And they buried that data in the supplements of the actual trial so that it was very hard to see. And they didn't talk about it when they were making their conclusions. Um, and the other thing too is that if you look at serious adverse effects, which are basically those adverse effects that require inpatient hospitalization, are life-threatening, result in death or permanent disability, this is serious, you actually have 127 people on the placebo, on the product arm and 116 on the placebo arm. So finally, I just want to look at deaths. And what we see here is that there's 15 deaths that occurred on the, on the mRNA product arm and only 14 on the placebo arm at the point before unblinding. And then we went on to have five additional deaths after those people who received the placebo went over and took the product. So at the end of the study, at six months in the six months report, we had 20 people who had died after receiving the mRNA product and only 14 who had died after receiving the placebo. So again, that would have been reason to pause and for sure not promote these vaccines as life-saving. There's nothing in this data here that would support them being beneficial in terms of preventing death. And if you look at the types of death that occurred, what you see is that only one less COVID death occurred because of the mRNA product, but you had four additional cardiovascular deaths that occurred on the product arm. And so what I would say, and what our team would say immediately when we looked at that is, that that is a signal for uh, causing death, a cardiovascular disease, or it's probably fueling cardiovascular disease. And what we would have wanted to see is all of these adverse reactions categorized and analyzed, but that was missing from the report. So we really didn't know why we had those deaths, but we would have definitely saw that as a signal and basically put the, the brakes on this particular product. Um, on the point of all-cause mortality, what, one of the things that we feared when we saw that particular chart way back in December 2020, and the reason why our firm started doing pro bono work in this particular area, was that we feared that when this was rolled out to healthy Canadians, that this would actually end up causing harm and even being fatal to younger people who didn't, weren't at even at risk of COVID-19. So this particular chart is data pulled from Health Canada. It's data that uh, goes from about February 2020 to, I'm just looking at my chart here, uh, February 2022. And it basically maps out 
what we would call excess death from those uh, 0 to 44 years. So it's the younger population that was not at risk of COVID-19 from that first graph. What you see is that the moment that the pandemic was declared and we went into lockdowns, it was excess death in the younger category or the younger group. And then again, when the, these little squiggly lines at the bottom of the graph, after the second dose of the vaccine was administered, you see another spike in excess deaths. So what that suggests then is that uh, what we feared is that these particular mRNA products may very well be causing uh, death. And the little blue line at the bottom is the number of COVID-19 deaths that occurred in this particular cohort. And you can see that these people weren't dying from COVID-19. They were dying from something altogether different that was timed very closely with delivery of that particular vaccine. So this is the end of my presentation. So one of the things that I'd really like to highlight in all of this is that this would seem, at least based on our particular analysis, that there was a high likelihood of a biased representation and reporting. Um, there was a lot on the line for these particular companies. Uh, and that they presented the data, although they went through the steps, they basically did not align their conclusions with the data. For instance, we weren't alerted to the fact that there was additional death. We weren't alerted to the fact that there were more serious and severe adverse effects that were proportional to the benefit of the, the product. Um, and finally, I think that this is potentially you know, what I would expect to see from manipulation on the part of a pharmaceutical company. However, I would say that this is gross regulatory failure on the part of our government in protecting Canadians. This drug should have never been put on the market. This trial, if scrutinized carefully, one would have seen the biased reporting. And finally, uh, you know, if they had been looking carefully, they would have been able to see where uh, the real-world outcomes are lined up and would have been able to respond and pull this particular product appropriately. Um, so that's all that I have to say today. So thank you for giving me the time. Um, that's it. Uh, at this point, do the commissioners have any questions of... Yes, Dr. Massey. Well, thank you very much for this presentation. Uh, I think I've, we've seen part of that in previous testimony. I'm, I'm not even sure if I would come back with the same question, but let me know if you already answered my question. My first question has to do with the uh, looking at the pandemic as we were trying to look at the case and, and uh, uh, hospitalization and death. One of the questions I have with that is a lot of that is based on the PCR testing very often mm -hmm. with and without symptoms, depending on how you qualify the symptom. So do, do we have an issue with describing the extent or the severity of the, the case by the attribution to COVID in this case? Because uh, mm -hmm. we've seen mm -hmm. that from previous results that it's clearly affecting more uh, elderly population, people with comorbidities. So to what extent can we actually be convinced that uh, this, this is what we are trying to address with these measures, in this case with the vaccine? Mm -hmm. So I think you raised a really excellent point is that clinically speaking, um, we, you know, the, the, the primary role in diagnosing somebody should always be based on their symptoms. And up until now, 
uh, you use a test, for instance, a PCR test, to validate the symptoms. Uh, however, what we did was we flipped things on their head with this particular pandemic, and we led with the PCR test. And we, you know, we would even consider somebody to have disease if they weren't symptomatic. So that's a very unusual arrangement. It's it's not something that, you know, we see anywhere else. Um, and the other thing too is that if you were to rely on a test like that, what you should have done is validate that test. And so that test was never clinically validated to my knowledge and therefore it should never have been used. And to your point, if you hadn't been using that test, then they basically would have been causing symptoms that they were trying to prevent in the people that they would see and it would have been obvious, but by the use of a test that they could actually um, change the outcomes to by either running the test more times or lower based on the threshold that they used, they can game the results for that particular test. And on that note as well, they didn't actually report the threshold that they were using for positivity in that trial. So that was another way that they could have been manipulating things. Um, and of course, if I were a pharmaceutical company and I wanted to make sure that my product looked the best, then I would make sure that I used a test that I could manipulate. For sure. So, so one of the questions that uh, was confusing at the beginning is that I, I guess everybody was hoping that vaccination would, would be one way to accelerate the way out of the pandemic, presumably by reducing transmission. And there's been the admission that this was not formally tested. Uh, would there have been a way to somewhat come up with a surrogate marker for transmission. And I'm thinking now that if we agree that to some extent the threshold of the PCR cycle uh, is an indication of the viral load, I mean, if you have very low PCR cycle, you to, to, to get a positive result, you assume it's because the viral load was higher to begin with, whereas if you have to really push it to high level, maybe the viral load is very low. And I'm thinking that, okay, if you have a very high viral load, maybe you're a good spreader because you have a lot of virus. Mm -hmm. And if you have very low viral load, you're not a very good spreader. So would, that, would not have been, then been an ad, and a way to measure that, in fact, you can suppress or reduce transmission following vaccination? Mm -hmm. um, I, for sure that they could have done viral assays and, and uh you know, assessed the the level of virus and people. So it, I think it was it was feasible. Um, however, I think that you know one of the things that seems to be clear to me now, after having looked at a lot of the conflicts of interest, that this was uh, intended to go forward regardless of results, and and therefore there was a selective focus on certain results in order to push uh, the ability to produce these products globally. Um, so although I think that they probably could have devised a test and in fact, you know, tests are validated all the time, I think that there was a lot of motivation not to, to do that so that, you know, they could continue with their narrative. That would be my thought on that one. But I'm not, I, I'm not, uh, I'm not an expert in testing per se, but more in clinical trial analysis. The other thing I'd like to ask is about the, um using the antibody titer as a surrogate marker, knowing that on the FDA side, it's clearly spelled out that this is not a reliable marker. 
It follows from there that other marker should or could have been used as a surrogate marker, like T cells and, and other mm-hmm. marker of uh, other immune cell. Uh, I suppose that these, based on my knowledge of immunology, these kind of assays are not that complicated to run if you if you have the resources to do it. Uh, why have not haven't they been deployed in this assay to really prove that? Uh, the, the vaccine was close or very close to what you would expect from natural immunity. That is, it was mimicking the kind of immune response you were getting from natural immunity. Is it something that was too cumbersome or too difficult to, to run in a clinical trial? Mm-hmm. That's, really, that's a really great question. So I think you touched on something called a surrogate. So a surrogate is, is something that you test right now that points to an outcome that you could get in the future. So, you know, uh, when you're running a clinical trial, it might take too long to figure out if it's going to stop hospitalization or death. So then you measure something up front uh, in order to to see, and you hope that it points to something in the distance. So, for instance, you know, hospitalization or death, and that that would be lowered. So if the surrogate's lower, then that would be lower. However, in order to to use a, a surrogate marker in a clinical trial, you actually need to validate that surrogate. Um, and it's called a correlative prevention when you're looking at vaccines, and that is not established. So the use of antibodies uh, was completely out of bounds in terms of a surrogate for protection because it, even the New England Journal of Medicine recently indicated that it's not a correlative prevention, especially not now that we're in the, the post-Omicron era. Uh, and so, of course, that would have been good, and they could have done it, um, but again, I think that we need to really consider that the course of the disease is 14 days, so using clinical endpoints would have been the better thing. And you can figure out within two months or three months whether somebody's going to die from COVID. Uh, and so the uh, actual clinical endpoint was well within reach of this particular trial, but they didn't actually measure it. Uh, and so my question then is, why did they use a non-validated surrogate instead of something that could have been measured, which is the actual outcome? And I would again say that it's easier to game a trial and the results if you if you use surrogates, especially non-validated ones. I guess my last question is to do with the uh, the, the two dose regimen that has been the standard. Uh, we've heard, I think, from some of the health public authority that uh, once you get the first dose, I mean, you're fairly well protected, even though it's not perfect. Um, you have a very good protection. And this was probably used as a come message in some area where, mm-hmm. for some reason, the stock of vaccine were not coming as quickly as possible. I know in Quebec, they've actually decided to space a little bit the second dose, which it seemed in retrospect was probably good in terms of boosting immune response. My question is, okay, you do a second dose and then you see an increase in antibody, it's not going to be a big surprise. So what is the threshold that we can expect in these first or second or even third dose to establish as a baseline to match up natural immunity? Mm -hmm. I think you would probably have to devise studies like the Qatar study that actually measured, you know, compared the vaccines to natural acquired immunity. But again, as a company, if you want to promote your product, then you don't want to compare it to something that is actually effective. What you want to do is you want to compare it to something that's ineffective so that you look positive. You can't win a test whenever the, the candidates are well-matched, right? So as, as citizens, uh, what we would want to see is 
you know, compare it to the most clinically relevant uh, outcome, which would be naturally acquired immunity, you know, and I was even saying I'm already immune. Uh, and, tr- and even up until this point, you know, if you had natural acquired immunity, nobody would expect that you would actually need a vaccine. However, again, for this particular enterprise of vaccinating people and rolling out a vaccine in record time and proving that we are innovative and working together globally to do something together, we were part of this whole movement, um, that's inconvenient, I would say. Uh, and therefore, even though I think I agree with you, it would be the best comparison. It certainly wasn't the best one to forward their agenda. Thank you. Are there any other questions from the commissioners? Yeah, Ken. Hello again. Good afternoon. Hi. Um, I recently read an article, and I'm just wondering whether you've heard of it or can validate it or not. But I recently read an article that a group in the United States has sued the FDA in order to find out what the placebo was that Pfizer or BioNTech used in their testing. Um, so my first question on that is, have you heard that? And secondly, how important is it in the selection of the placebo in a test? Generally, a placebo would have been considered saline, so I'm, I'm curious to know what this particular group is thinking it might have been. Um, According to the article I read, the judge ruled that they would not reveal the placebo because it was a trade secret. Oh, a trade secret water or sugar water. That's interesting. So yeah, maybe it was the, the lipid nanoparticle product without the mRNA. Um, but I'm not, I'm not familiar with it. I do know that uh, it did have, it did cause side effects potentially adverse effects, so it is possible that it wasn't inert, which is what you'd hope for uh, in a placebo. But I, again, I think one of the things that uh, I find concerning is all the secrecy surrounding this. Uh, you know, you're not allowed, you know, transparency is, is often um, a good sign for honest enterprise. And, uh, you know, when you start to see contracts that can't be revealed and things that are cloaked in language of trade secrets, I think that that would be a good sign as consumers or potential people who would be considering these things to not take it based on that uh, that alone. If they're not willing to share the results, if they're not willing to explain to it how it's done, if you don't see the quality control studies, then I would probably say that uh, it's something that shouldn't be considered. Did I also hear you right that Um, they never tested this for for cancer effects and carcinogenic effects? Yeah, so that's a very good question. So there are, uh, you know, there's this whole phase of clinical research that should occur before you go into clinical trials. So clinical trials is the testing that you do in humans. You know, there's phase one, two, and three, and then there's preclinical. And, you know, if we were to think about it in broad strokes, you'd want to test it in cells and then tissues and then systems to make sure that it's safe. Um, Because uh, what they did was they used an adaptive clinical trial design, which allowed the, you know, the FDA and Health Canada allowed them to collapse all of those things and kind of do it in tandem. Um, and, And part of that was they didn't do all of what they normally do. So what they normally do is uh, tests 
about reprotoxicity, that's reproduction toxicity, so you want to make sure it's not going to hurt somebody's reproduction. Oncotoxicity, which is the one that you're talking about, that it's not going to cause cancer. Uh, Tetratox or tetrogenicity, which isn't going to cause defects, or genotoxicity, which isn't going to cause genetic harm, and they failed to do all of those tests, which would have normally been done. Uh, again, that would be another reason why you wouldn't, you know, it would have been unethical to even enroll people to clinical trials without those tests done, but certainly not to give it to healthy people under the guise of a vaccine. Uh, and as it relates to oncotoxicity, that's my particular area of specialty. Um, I have noticed, so whenever you're dealing with biologics, they can either turn on pathways that lead to cancer or turn them off. We're hoping that we use biologics that turn them off. And, you know, that's what I've been studying for 23 years. Maybe not 23, but maybe about 15 uh, and, you know, we immediately went and looked to see if they were turning on some of the pathways that lead to cancer and published a video on our YouTube channel stating that, you know, we were concerned about this and our, our video was taken down as misinformation. Um, but that is definitely an area that, I, that we're going to be pursuing more recently because there's certain databases that now are um, emerging where we can actually look at some data to see how this has had an effect on cancer rates. So... More to come on that area. You know, throughout the uh, pandemic, I kept hearing um, criticisms of other potential uh, treatments like, uh, I don't know, hydroxychloroquine. And, the, and, the, and the, what they were saying about that was there, were, there weren't any independent peer-reviewed studies. Would you consider this study done by Pfizer to be an independent peer-reviewed study? I was certainly not independent. <laughs> I think we could check that box off. Um, peer reviewed, it did. It did pass peer review. However, I think that a num you know what we really need to remember is that the New England Journal of Medicine, which is where they publish this, has partnerships with pharmaceutical companies, and they have, at least in the area of cancer, uh, have you know they've signed a prime like a, a first priority deal, or I don't know what it is, but the moment that a, you know, breaking news comes out that they get first shakes at it, and they've been working with pharmaceutical companies for a long time uh, to get, you know, break, groundbreaking publications out the same day that the, the results are presented, for instance, at a conference or something along those lines, and that even some of the senior editors of the journal actually are the principal investigators of a lot of the mRNA trials. So there's conflicts, and of course, the sponsorship of the journals is from pharmaceutical companies. So, you know, they're tainted uh, as well. So it is peer-reviewed, for sure, but the, the reviewers, I would have liked to see their conflicts of interest because I don't know if uh, it was unbiased. How about that? Um, and I also want to be clear on something that you talked about. You showed a chart, actually, and the chart was about um, adverse reactions. And I believe it showed that seven to 14 days following injection, that patients would develop symptoms that very much mimicked COVID-19 itself. That's correct. And I note from that, and from a previous testimony, that um, most jurisdictions that I'm aware of said you were unvaccinated for 14 days following the shot, which was a period of time that you would be demonstrating potentially demonstrating side effects from the shot. And do you have any opinion as to whether or not side effects following vaccine may have been counted as COVID-19 cases in what they define to be unvaccinated people? 
That's a good question. Um, I definitely think that the term of unvaccinated was such that anybody that was suffering from side effects from the shot that it wouldn't be wouldn't be counted because you know or if they were if they did have a strong reaction whether it was confirmed via PCR test or not um, would have been categorized as unvaccinated so for instance if the if getting receiving the shot would have caused you to be hospitalized immediately following the shot then you would have been hospitalized uh, but you would have been considered unvaccinated so if you know in those charts that they showed in Ontario, for instance, the you know, and they said, "Oh my goodness, it's a pandemic of the unvaccinated." That very well could have been based on that definition. People were having reactions to the shots. Right. So the the, the symptoms of the sh uh, potential symptoms of the shot could have been mistaken as COVID, and and I wonder whether even a PCR test would have detected that. I mean, on other on other um, testimony, we we heard that uh, the PCR tests weren't testing necessarily for the COVID virus, but bits and pieces of, 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 of um, material that could have been attributed to dozens, if not hundreds of different viruses. Mm -hmm. I, I'm not, again, not an expert in the testing, um, but I, I can say that if they hadn't tested and they assumed that it was COVID, then that would have been, you know, then, then that definitely would have been attributed to somebody that's unvaccinated, even though they were vaccinated because of that that pause. And I think that, again, if we were to be thinking about it, even from a just a bio, you know, we, I'm always thinking about mode of action, because that's how you think when you're, you're developing cancer therapies, as you always start at that point. But if we knew that the component of the virus that caused illness was the spike protein, right? So what amount of logic would need, you know, how, how could it possibly be logical that we would ask the body to produce the very pathogen that we know to be the issue and in, in copious amounts and not expect any outcome from that. Um, you know, just it's, it's nonsensical just from a biological point of view or a mo mode of action point of view. Um, so I think that they, I think, you know, it, I think that what they really want to do is they, they like this mRNA technology and they want to use it in many different areas and they needed a way to get it promoted and so they use the crisis as an opportunity. But the reason why they like mRNA technology is when you're developing a drug, there's a clinical development stage that is very expensive and so if you can collapse the number of, um, if you can collapse the clinical trial, you know, this, do this adaptive trial design, then you can get it done much more quickly and if you can use surrogates, then you can get it done more quickly. So the cost of producing your drug goes down. The other part of that's expensive, especially when it comes to vaccines, is the manufacturing of the drug. And so there's a lot of living systems and isolation and testing and standards. But what if you could imagine if you had a 3D printer, an mRNA printer in the back shop, and all you had to do is hit a button and then it could produce something. It's very cost effective <coughs> to produce the mRNA shots. And so, you know, Industry wins in the sense of low cost for development, and industry wins in the sense of low manufacturing capacity. And then if you can position it as a vaccine and give it to absolutely everybody, right, then the, the sky's the limit in terms of your market. So really what this is, is it's a product that's been strategically positioned by global entities uh, to make maximum profit. 
and again, I would argue at the expense of the, the global citizenship because they certainly didn't prove that it was safe or do rigorous enough safety testing to ensure safety before uh, it was pushed forward on, on global citizens. If my understanding of the mRNA technology, at least to be used in humans large scale, because uh, my friend Dr. Massey will tell me that the technology has been around for a long time, but not to be used in humans. So you would think something like this that has never been used in a mass of humans before, and the effects could not be known, would have taken a much longer time to evaluate, and it would have a many, many different studies to evaluate different things. Is, would that not be a typical expectation for some new technology platform? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right that when you're looking at novel technology, it's novel because you don't know very much about how it works, and therefore safety should be your primary concern, and, and thoughtful, careful testing over time would be the best way to move forward, unless you're a pharmaceutical company wanting to profit off of a crisis, and then expedited testing would be better because that gets it out on the market, and you're therefore, you know, the argument is that people needed it. They were dying of COVID-19. However, if you if you harm the masses in order to try and treat a group of people, it breaks the, the, ethical, the ethical principle of minimal intervention, which is you should always look for the intervention that is least invasive or intrusive. And it also um, does something that we call a, a morbidity transference. So basically you're transferring the morbidity or the sickness from the elderly people and you're putting it on the backs of the healthy people of the world calling it vaccination. Uh, however, that would probably be an inappropriate term because, you know, a vaccine, you know, although some could enhance immunity, you know, that would be immunomodulator would be the proper term. And there would be no basis for mass vaccination unless you can prove that it stopped transmission. And in their very publication, their very first publication, they clearly stated that it was not, that the study was not able to do that. So again, what I would say is that we've got, you know, capture from entities, you know, in our healthcare system, you know, our health authorities had other motivations or other interests at play other than our well-being yeah, in order to prove, to push these particular products. Uh, my last question is based on your review of the testing protocols and data, would you classify, in your opinion, is this a safe and effective vaccine? Um, I would say that it, it fails the efficacy test. I would say that the, this, the trial is probably clinically irrelevant because it doesn't compare it to naturally acquired immunity and it's been done on a, a, a virus that's no longer circulating in the sense that their variants are circulating. Um, I would say that, so right away I don't think that there's any evidence to say that it's beneficial to people who've got naturally acquired immunity and there's no evidence and in terms of safety, I think that the studies prove that it's the opposite, that I think it proves that it harms. And in terms of efficacy, you know, at least based on the actual phase three trials, I would probably say that there's negligible benefit. I have many more questions, but thank you very much. Okay, thanks. Great. Are there any other questions from the commissioners? On behalf of the National Citizens Inquiry, I want to thank you for uh, providing your testimony again. <laughs> thank you very much.
Thank you so much for listening to this broadcast of the National Citizens Inquiry. It's so important to get the testimonies of Canadians out there, so please share on all your channels and invite your friends and family to listen in. As always, you can head over to nationalcitizensinquiry.ca to sign our petition and find out more on how you can take personal responsibility. From the National Citizens Inquiry, thank you. The world is watching.